Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. I don't know how often you've read the Bible and noticed that many of the characters in the scripture end up in prison. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, Joseph gets thrown into a jail in Egypt. Samson is incarcerated by the Philistines. Daniel is, of course, thrown in jail by the Medo-Persians. In the New Testament, you got John the Baptist, who is incarcerated by Herod Antipas. Uh, you've got Peter thrown in jail by a nephew, Herod Agrippa the first. And then, of course, Paul was in several prisons, spent a night in a uh, Philippian jail with Barnabas and was incarcerated in Rome as well. In Caesarea, I could name others. But it's interesting in a list like that of very prominent biblical characters that end up in jail, how many of those you realize, matter of fact, all of those you realize that I just listed are all incarcerated unjustly. They were innocent. They were not guilty. They were wrongly accused. Now, I know if you stroll through the corridors of today's prisons and jails, they'll try to convince you that it's full of innocent people today, I realize. But you know, in a modern American 21st century jurisprudence, that's not often the case. And when it is the case and someone is exonerated, it makes the front pages of the papers because someone has been wrongly in prison. Well, the Bible speaks of a kind of prison, a jailhouse of sorts, that we are all subject to. There is an incarceration that the Bible speaks of in a spiritual sense that's true of every last person and no one is wrongly accused. Everyone is guilty. No one is unjustly incarcerated in this proverbial jailhouse. Talk about wrongly accused people. We are studying right now through Luke, Luke chapter 23, where Jesus is being wrongly accused of all kinds of things that he didn't do. And he's in shackles and he's there before first Annas and then Caiaphas, the high priest's And then on to Pilate, and then he got kicked last time we were together off to Herod, and now Herod has sent him back to Pilate in our passage as we pick it up in Luke 23, 13. But we encounter a kind of a juxtaposition, a a comparison, and a contrast with another prisoner, and this prisoner is guilty. And the strange thing about this prisoner is he gets set free. Barabbas is his name. We have Barabbas and Jesus standing in stark contrast with one another, which is more than just a historical narrative for us. It is a historical narrative, and it's true that here we have Barabbas, who's guilty, and you have Jesus, that's innocent, and one of them, who's innocent, gets not only incarcerated, but he goes on to his own execution, and you have the other one, who's guilty, who gets freed. And while we can speak of that in historical terms, there's something I think we should stop and, and learn theologically about all of that. It is a great and fantastic illustration of the gospel. The gospel of the fact that we are all in a a jailhouse, so to speak, of of sin. We have a a conviction and and a bondage to that sin that ultimately is going to lead to a prison of eternal judgment. In a sense, we are in a jail and we then will be delivered after the great white throne to a permanent place of incarceration. But when it comes to this jail, the whole point of the gospel is you can have guilty people that are rightly condemned in that jail set free. That's the concept of redemption. That's the ancient word for it, the idea of being set free. And then their full exoneration will come into crystal clear clarity when they step across the threshold of this life into the freedom that they'll experience in the new Jerusalem. That is a a great 
picture that I think is worth underscoring in a passage that kind of prolongs and protracts this terrible feeling that Christ is here incarcerated, being beaten, being whipped, and about to go to his own execution as we stand back and meet this interesting character named Barabbas. So take your Bibles, if you haven't already, and turn with me to Luke chapter 23. We're going to deal with verses 13 through 25, which is a rather large section for us this morning, to try and deal with this picture that I hope that we can go away this morning and say, I I am seeing that now perhaps a little differently than I have before. I'm understanding some implications that go beyond just the statements of a trial 2,000 years ago, but it really speaks to something theological, something that's relevant for us right now in this place. So follow along as I read for you verses 13 through 25 of Luke chapter 23. I'll read from the English Standard Version. Here it goes. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people. And he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I hope you're starting to see the double entendre here. I understand we're dealing with the sliding scale of human jurisprudence as he stands before Pilate, but nothing could be a truer statement in all of Scripture than that right there. Nothing deserving death has been done by him. If you stop thinking of a sliding scale and a curve and start thinking about an absolute scale and you understand that the wages of sin is death, you're starting to see that is a statement that's doubly true in the most profound way. I will therefore punish and release him, which may make you scratch your head if he's innocent. Why are you punishing him? More on that later. Nevertheless, he wants to let him go. Unless you think there's a typo in your Bible, you can see in the ESV here, we go from verse 16 to verse 18, and you're going, where did verse 17 go? And, and the real question you should ask is, why was verse 17 ever there? Well, here's the reason verse 17 was there. Verse 17, which your Bible should note in the margin, or maybe you have some other translations that put it in brackets, or maybe some put it in italics, but it should read somewhere that there was a verse that was there that made its way from the column into the text of a lot of the ancient copies that showed up throughout church history that read, he was obliged to release one man at the festival. And that's injected there from both Matthew and Mark as an explanation of about what, what's going to happen. But really, the reliable and ancient text that we have, though there's notes and stars and some manuscripts in the margin, the idea of that explanation, which comes from Matthew and from Mark, was really not a part of what Luke had initially read. Now, you can debate that with me, and I'm happy to debate that with you afterwards. But suffice it to say at this particular junction, lest you take a translation from the 15th or 17th century, as so often is done, an English translation from the 17th century, say that's the, that's the gold standard. That's the benchmark. If you take anything out of that, you've done something that equates to something we see in the the end of the book of Revelation. Well, note that we're not only concerned about taking things out of the scripture, I'm certainly concerned about putting things into the scripture. And if there's some kind of notation in a column that makes its way into the text throughout the copying process, late in the process of, of making the transmission of the text to get to where we are today, I'm just as interested in making sure you don't add anything to the text versus take anything out of it. It's equally important. So the, the question isn't really, where did it go? It's the question, if you research this, why was it there? You want more on that? We can talk in the lobby. We can talk in my office. I'm not inviting all of you over to my office necessarily, but if it's really bothering you, ask your small group leader, ask the people here in in pastoral leadership or anybody here, even our small group leaders will help you work through that. You can edit all that out back to where we are. Reading the text, missing verse 17, no need to miss it. Just know that the explanation as to why 
there's a whole issue about releasing someone. It says that was the expectation at the festival of the Passover, and that's where we're at right here on Friday morning. But I guess I should go back to read verse 16 again. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they all cried in response to that statement. You can see even those how those quickly go together there. Wow, I'm, let, me, let me stop talking about the textual emendation. Here we go. Verse 16. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. A man, let's, who is that guy? A man who has been thrown into prison for an insurrection, he's a rebel, started in the city and for murder. Got a bad rap sheet here. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, which is interesting. We already saw a little bit of that. He kicks the can down the road to send Jesus to Herod. We've already injected into this, at least the scene in our minds, that Pilate's wife has this dream. This guy's innocent. Don't mess with him. Pilate wants to let Jesus off. Doesn't want to send a guy that he thinks is innocent to an execution. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. That's what they wanted done. A third time, verse 22, he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate, the wimp, decided that their demand should be granted. And he released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over their will. So he reluctantly gives a thumbs down to Christ to have him go off to his crucifixion, all the while releasing someone who's a notorious, as Matthew puts it, a notorious sinner, a notorious criminal in their midst, and you can see why. And if you didn't catch that, notice this, and we piece this together from all four Gospels. Pilate did not want to crucify Jesus, as our text says, and so he, in this tradition of releasing a prisoner, decides to pick a prisoner who's so notoriously bad that if I said to you, I got a guy that you're envious of, you're jealous of, you think he's a problem, but I'm going to pick, I don't know, you know, uh, John Wayne Gacy, or I'm going to pick Charles Manson, and I'm going to say, okay, which one should I release? He's thinking, for sure, you're not going to let Manson go because you're jealous of this guy who's kind of taking the applause and the spotlight off of you. And yet they didn't buy it. They were so heinous in their hatred for Christ that they said, we want Barabbas. Now, I noted for you here in verse 15, as he says, I I examined him. I didn't find anything that he's done that's guilty. There's no charges that I think that are going to stick. Herod didn't find anything either. The two of us, now we're friends. We're fist pumping in verse 12. We don't like this guy. Look, there's nothing, and here's the apex of it. Nothing, verse 15, deserving death has been done by him. I want you to see the double entendre there. Theologically, we couldn't say it any more succinctly or better, and it'd be good for us to stop and pause in our service and just say, let's take note of that. And if you're taking notes, jot it down. Number one, we need to ponder the perfection of Christ. Because when it comes to what's unfolding in our passage, which is the redemption that we need, the salvation that Christ secured by his whipping and his beating and his death and his torture that day, I know this, what I need is for him to be perfect. And that's exactly what he is. He is perfect. There is nothing deserving death, not just a criminal execution in Israel. I'm talking about he doesn't deserve to die because the wages of sin is death. And this is the only one who has not sinned. Please note how clear that is in Scripture. From the very beginning, in the prophecies that spoke of a suffering servant in Isaiah 53, let me quote for you a couple of verses. Verse 9, when it speaks of the coming one who would be crucified and be with the rich in his death, 
which was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. It says in that passage, he had done no violence, which I know you may think of him beating on someone. That's not what we're talking about. I mean, although that certainly applies. Violence means he didn't violate any of the standards of God. That Jesus had no, no deviation from God's perfect standard. And if that's not clear enough for you, here's the next line, which we can all identify with. And it says, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Think about that. You may say, well, I'm not a violent person, although I think I could look at that word and say, I think you have violated the standards of God. But if I said to you, raise your hand if you haven't sinned in terms of your deceit in your mouth, put it succinctly, how many of you haven't lied? Only the hands of liars would go up, right? Right? Because I got you either way. You've lied. That's the problem. We're, we're liars. From the time you were stealing cookies from the cookie jar and mom said, did you have one? You have been a liar, a deceiver, as a selfish person. Think about the fact that it says of Jesus, never lied. That is a critical statement. Jot these two references down real quick from John chapter 8. Just jot them down. Look them up later if you want to see the context. John chapter 8, verse 46. He stands before his enemies. And I want you to think about standing before your enemies for a second. People that don't like you who are not just passing strangers. They, they are in your everyday life. They are the kinds of people that have heard you teach. They've seen you. They've watched you. You've been living your life out in the open. You're not running to your own home. You don't even have a home. These people are, are audience to you. He says this, which one of you convicts me of sin? Can you imagine giving people an open door to say, tell me anything I've ever done that's wrong that deviates from God's glorious standard? Tell me that. I don't want to ask my friends that question, let alone my enemies. They're going to, they're going to find something. Earlier in the passage, I said two references. John chapter 8, verse 46, he asked the question, which one of you convicts me of sin? And he had just said this in verse 29, John 8, 29. I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. Oh, I want you to think about that for a second. You may fancy yourself a godly person, but to say, I always do. I mean, you may say, well, yesterday from 2 to 2.30, I, I, I did what was pleasing to the Father. Or I kind of I was 80% firing on my spiritual cylinders last week. But you're not going to stand up and say, I always do what's pleasing to the Father. Unless, of course, you're a liar. Right? So that doesn't work. This is an insane thing to stand up to say to the crowds of friends and enemies. I always do what the Father wants. And then, by the way, any of you convict me of sin? This is not a guy that lived in private. This is an incredible claim. And certainly it is true. And even his own family comes to bow their knee, many of them at least, that we know of in Scripture, the half-brother of Christ. It is an amazing thing that people that know him best say, no problem, holy. Matter of fact, that's the biblical word for it, holy. That word holy, both in Hebrew, in the Old Testament, gadosh, and in New Testament, hagios, both these words in in Greek and in Hebrew both give us a sense at the root of the word of separation, something that's separate. And that's helpful Helpful in the sense that we recognize that there's something about the separateness, the distinctness, the transcendence of God that makes him different and and special than everything else. He is special in a lot of ways that we would call non-communicable ways. In other words, the attributes of God that nothing else and no one else can share, from Michael the archangel to to anybody in, in this room. And that's true. He's separate in that sense. But he's also separate in the communicable attributes. In other words, let's put it this way. When it comes to God being a unique and special individual, let's just put it that way. He is someone who always does things well. He always does right. Or as the psalmist puts it, all his ways are perfect. Now that's a God, when it comes to who he is, becomes the benchmark and standard 
for all the, the, what we would call the communicable or shared attributes of God. In other words, if God should be faithful, he's faithful. If God should be honest, he's honest. If God should be indignant, he's indignant. If God should be kind, he's kind. If he should be generous, he's generous. He's all of those things. And then those become the things that are the standard for us. I am holy, you be holy also in all of your behavior. So the word holy not only has a sense of being set apart, which physically, that's why inanimate objects can be called holy. You can have things in the tabernacle, instruments or tables or the anointing oil to say that's holy oil, that's, that's a holy piece of, of showbread or that's a holy candelabra, that's a holy room or a holy of holies, the interior holy room of the holy place. And it has no ethical quality, just like you drinking a bottle of water and setting it on the counter at your house. If I walk in, I I assume that's holy. That doesn't mean it's ethically moral. It just means I'm not going to drink after you, and it's yours. You've set it apart for yourself. But the ethical quality is that God is separate and different from us, and all of his behavior becomes the benchmark for my behavior. If God is faithful in this situation, I should be faithful in this situation. If God is honest, I should be honest. If God is going to be patient, then I should be patient. If God should reach out in kindness in that situation, then I should reach out in kindness. I am to reflect that moral and ethical standard. And of course, the Bible says all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short. First verses I hope you learned from Romans as a kid were, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We don't live up to that. But Christ comes on the scene and says, check my life. See what I've done. Why? Because I quoted for you Isaiah 53, verse 9. Let me quote verse 10. Here's why. Because the one who's done no violence, violated nothing of God's standard, and there's no deceit or lying in his mouth, which is the easiest sin for us to commit. The next verse says, because the Lord is going to take his soul, crush him, and offer him as a guilt offering. Now that resonated with people who grew up in Old Testament worship. They knew this. If I'm going to go to the worship center, I bring from my flock, not the one I can't sell at the cattle auction. I bring something from my flocks that is perfect. It is the best. It's the quintessential lamb that I bring from. There's no, there's no disease. It's, it's young. It's strong. It's, it's perfect. It's coat is perfect. It's the best that I have. And I bring that to the worship center. Leviticus chapter one, verse four. I put my hand on its head and I allow that throat to be cut and that body, that carcass to be laid on that altar. And we burn that. And that is an example, as it says in Leviticus one, of me as a guilty person seeing some kind of transference of guilt by that symbol symbolic hand on the head of the animal, now suffering, the innocent suffers so that the guilty can go home from that worship service and say, God has forgiven me. I'm a gra- uh, God's grace has been evident in my life. I get to live another day, another week while that animal dies in my place. Of course, that means nothing in terms of re- the reality of our sin. The Bible says that there's no blood of bulls and goats that can ever forgive or atone for our sins, but it was a picture. It was a picture that came to crystal sharp focus When John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, the one he says, I'm not worthy to even untie his sandal. And he says, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He is going to be the one who's going to take my place. And the key was, you've got to have a spotless, blemishless lamb. You've got to have a perfect animal. And why is that? Because I got a deficiency. I've got a problem. I'm not righteous. I'm not holy. I fall short of that standard. And the Bible says Christ comes on the scene. Here's how it's put in in Hebrews chapter one, verse three, that he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. So all the perfection of God who does everything perfectly, all his ways are perfect. Now, Christ comes as the embodiment. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. God incarnate. He comes and solves the problem for us in this, that I'm not righteous. I need righteousness to ever be acceptable to God. And he comes and lives as a human being, even though he's fully God, to be perfect in my place. That's the picture. 
We quote it all the time, but it's a great passage in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I need that righteousness. I've got to have human righteousness fulfilled by the substitution of Christ in my place. Ponder the perfection of Christ. None of us can say that we are without sin, but there was one that was without sin. If there ever was a true statement, it was this. Nothing that Jesus did was deserving of death. Nothing. And I don't mean in a courtroom, although that's true. And he's about to be convicted in a courtroom. But I mean he's never done anything that should lead to the sentence that was given to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 that we've all been suffering ever since the beginning of time. Ponder the perfection of Christ. I need righteousness. Christ has it. There's a passage before we leave this thought I'd like you to look at with me, Hebrews chapter 7. And I don't want to inject too many sub-points to this idea, but I do think it's helpful to come with an Old Testament understanding of what it is to have a high priest that represents you. Now, we don't have priests. We don't have high priests. The priests are the priests. We don't have that. I'm a Baptistic, just like you are in that sense. I believe in what we call the priesthood of the believer. We all have direct access to the Father through the mediation of Christ because Christ becomes that priest for us, the high priest. But in the Old Testament, I think it was kind of helpful for you to recognize that we're not just all on equal footing here, even among us. There was something about that hierarchy of having priests and a high priest, the priest of the priests. Now, we may have structures in our organizations, but it does not mean what it meant in the Old Testament. When you had this symbolic picture of God's holiness in a place called the tabernacle and later in the temple, and you had this class of people that had access and privileges that you could never have, and then among them there was this high priest that had access and privileges that they didn't have, and that that high priest would go and stand in as an advocate, like a lawyer between you and God. That mediation was helpful because they recognized this. We're sinful. We need someone to go talk to God for us. All the way back to Moses, this was going on. This mediatorial connection between, the, between God. Now, that's gone because Christ takes that position. Take a look at this statement about that and the distinction that's made, although the similarity that helps us understand the need for a mediator. Verse 26, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. For it was indeed fitting, which is the whole point of this first point. I'm trying to say it is appropriate and fitting and right and necessary that Jesus be holy. That we should have such a high priest, and of course the one in view here, as you glance back up, we're talking about Jesus. He be, look, holy, innocent, unstained, and here's the base root of the idea of, of holy, separated. Not just in the terms of his qualities, his ontological qualities, but his attributes, his difference between us and him. He's separated from sinners. And, and how, how far above us is he? Well, he's exalted above the heavens. Here is someone that has no connection, really, when it comes to us as it relates to ethics and morals and righteousness. He is so in a whole class by himself. Well, he is in a class by himself. He's in the God class. He is God. And that picture here of a holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, exalted above the heavens, high priest, is exactly what we need. And now he compares it to the Old Testament system. Though that framework is helpful in understanding our need for mediation, it's nothing like the mediation we have now. Verse 27. For he, Christ, has no need, like those high priests, the Old Testament high priests, to offer daily sacrifices. For first, for his own sins. He's got to deal with that, because though he may be the best among the best, he's the holiest, at least he's supposed to be. He still has a sin. Every day he has sin. He's not perfect, so he's got to deal with his own sins. And he's bringing in symbolic pictures of the need for atonement for his own life. And then those for the people. 
repentance. He did, Christ that is, once for all, when he offered himself up. He gave that sacrifice, but he didn't need a sacrifice for his own sin because he was the sinless one. Behold, look, John says, the Lamb of God, he's going to solve the problem. He has no sin. That's so helpful. Look at those, that list again in verse 26. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. That's why you can't be a JW. You cannot be a Muslim. You cannot be a Hindu, a Buddhist, and say, yeah, we think he's an enlightened, Jesus is an enlightened guy. He's a prophet. He's, he's above us in terms of being Michael, the archangel, or whatever. You can't have those views and think you're going to have any benefit from Christ being any kind of mediator. Well, of course, they don't believe he's a mediator. But we know he's the mediator. He's the one who makes us right before God because he takes his human righteousness, which is divine. It's divinely energized. And by that, I mean everything that he ever did in his humanity is affected by the divinity that he has in his perfection to say, here's righteousness at age three. Here's righteousness at age 10. Here's righteousness at age 23. All of that now is now imputed. It's credited to me. So that God says, oh, Mike Fabaris, he's not holy, but Jesus was. And so, bam, all the human holiness that is needed for me to be the kind of person that God said, I'm going to send my, quote, Holy Spirit into you. Talk about the odd couple. Why would the Holy Spirit ever want to have any resonance or connection relationally with me? Because he's at home here. Why? Because the imputation, the crediting of God's perfect righteousness lived out, fleshed out in humanity and every human decision all now seen by the Father in me because Christ accomplished it for me. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. That's the only mediator that we could ever possibly necessitate or have or earn our salvation. We've got to have it. We need righteousness. We have none. We fall short. And as Paul said, this is not adding to it. You got 62%. Well, he's going to take up the rest. This is, as Paul clearly put in Philippians when he talked about his own life, I might have some temptation to have confidence in my behavior more than you guys that I'm writing to, but I have to count all of it lost. I take all my righteousness and I realize it's not worthy, set it aside, completely new resume laid on top of my life, all because of the perfection of Christ. Now again, I admittedly and unapologetically derive a theological observation from this very human intention of Pilate to say, I don't think he should be executed. And I'm saying he shouldn't even die. I get that. We need that. We need that in a passage that gives us one of the greatest illustrations of substitutionary atonement. And so we continue against that backdrop of a perfect one that does not deserve to die in any way. Verse 16 says, I will therefore punish and release him. But they cried out together away with this man back to Luke 23. Now verse 18 Release to us Barabbas. Who's Barabbas? A man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection, started in the city, and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. Now that's an amazing thought. It's an amazing thought that when you have the option between Charles Manson and a guy I'm just jealous and envious of or I hate for all the wrong reasons, I'm going to really go with letting Manson go and letting you crucify this guy that in my heart I know went around doing good, healing people, feeding 5,000, all the rest. He's claiming to be someone, I get that, and maybe even some believed he was a blasphemer, but the idea of how in the world can I have the worst of the worst be set free while I'm having Jesus now sent to a cross to be executed. These people are nasty people. They have a bad heart. What vitriol, what sin in their lives? Well, that's true. And I think in some ways we can identify with them 
We can also identify with Pilate, who I called a wimp as I read the text. Didn't mean to uh, inject words into the scripture myself, but there, anyway, I can't help but think, wow, you folded under the pressure of these people. You know he's innocent. You've been warned he's innocent. But the person I'd like you to identify is not so much the high priests as we've done before or the rulers of the people or Judas or the crowd or even Pilate, but I'd like you to identify with Barabbas. Well, I'm not going to have a hard time doing that, Pastor Mike. You shouldn't. What we should do when looking at a passage like this is be able to say, you know what, really the issue here in the illustration of substitution, what the idea is Christ is substituting really in his death for this criminal. And that criminal, it's a great picture of us being substituted by Christ on a cross. He suffers, I go free. This guy was a bad sinner. And you know what? I guess I need to agree that I am sinner in kind, maybe not to the same degree, but categorically, I'm a lot like Barabbas. That'd be the challenge for a preacher right now in the middle of this sermon to get you to think that way. So let me do it first by having you write down this phrase. Number two, you need to see your own sinfulness. And the sinfulness I'd like you to see would go beyond the concentric circles of the crowd, of the Pharisees, of the chief priest, of Herod, of Pilate, and go right to the place of Barabbas. Well, you got two big words there, insurrectionist and murder, and I'm not sure I qualify for either. Well, let me help you with that. Go with me to, to Matthew chapter 5 real quick. Matthew chapter 5. Oh, I know where you're going. Good. It's great. But let's go there and read it afresh as though you've never read it before. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talks a little bit about murder. He starts by quoting the command from Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. Look at verse 21. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. I'm trying to say we're all categorically in the same box. We may not be the same place on the spectrum. We may not be as bad as Barabbas in terms of shoving a knife through someone's torso and watching them bleed out. I'm not, I'm not saying that you've done that. I mean, I hope not too many of you have done that. It'd be great if no one in the room has done that. But I am saying you're in the same place in terms of category. Different on the spectrum. You may not be as bad as Barabbas, but you're as bad off as Barabbas. And here's why. On the authority of Christ, let me read you this verse. Verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, quoting Old Testament now, quote, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. And we'd all pound our fists in our open palm and say, yes, away with the murderer. Someone with a malice and a forethought goes and murders someone. They ought to be punished. It should be terrible for them. Verse 22. But I say to you, I'm going to show you now there's a category and you belong in the category. You may not be on the same place in the spectrum, but you are in the category. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, which by the way, is the reason people with malice aforethought kill people. Am I right? That's the point. They're angry with their brother. If you're angry with your brother, you will be liable to judgment. Same phrase. Look up again at verse 21. Murderers liable to judgment. Here it is. Verse 22. Angry people liable to judge. I'm not talking about righteous indignation, although everything about your personal hatred for your brother, you like to throw it into the category of righteous indignation. But let's get real because the same people that you claim to be righteously indignant about are the same kinds of infractions you so readily forgive in other people that you think are your friends and other people that that you, you like, people in your family. And as you look in the mirror, you exonerate yourself. I'm just saying this. Isn't it just that you just are angry with them. This is anger that holds in your heart this kind of vitriol, this kind of this kind of acrimony, this kind of animosity toward people. Well, it goes further. Sometimes that anger bubbles out of my mouth. Middle of verse 22. Whoever insults his brother, and who hasn't done that, right? 
I mean, of course, we all have insulted our brother. You'll be liable to the council. Underline that word council and remember where we are in Luke 23. Jesus has, standed, has stood just recently before the council. The 70 priests and the one high priest that presides over it in the semicircle there in Jerusalem, standing there as an accused person with the secretary tables next to him. And he stands there with these rows, four or five rows, like in a, like in a gymnasium, with these 70 judges of Israel. It's as though you should stand there just for insulting your brother. The whole nation should come down on you. Wow, that seems a little extreme. Oh, it gets worse. Bottom of verse 22. And whoever says you fool and fill in your favorite word for disparaging your brother, right? Whatever you like to call people when you're angry at them, will be liable to the hell of fire. Yeehaw. What? That, that's rough. Why is that? Because we need to understand the grave nature of falling short of the glory of God. The God of the universe is ontologically, by the essence of who he is, completely intolerant of anything less than the moral perfection that he exudes and exists and and demonstrates by his own attributes. And here we are as people who violated that and fallen short. You may not have plunged a knife into someone like I'm assuming Barabbas did in the insurrection. But I bet you've had these verbal swords come out of your mouth. And the Bible says, you know what? That's not what God can ever tolerate. He's never going to let his spirit into the life of someone who has that on their record. Not going to happen unless somehow we can expunge that from their record. Somehow we got to deal with that. That sinfulness has to be dealt with. All right. Well, I guess by Jesus' standards, I'm a murderer. Maybe not the same place on the spectrum, but categorically, I guess I'm in the same ballpark. Great. I don't know if I got half of you on that, but maybe, yes. I look in the mirror, I say the same of me. We're all guilty. One more passage, Psalm 2. Let's talk about that insurrectionist part. Murder or an insurrectionist? He's an insurrectionist. You know what an insurrectionist is? There's a rebellion. And it might have been for reasons that they thought were reasonable. I don't like the taxation in Rome, whatever. I'm going to overthrow this government. Nevertheless, it's a rebellion against, against authority. A rebellion against authority. Which, by the way, think of it for a second, everyone there in that crowd saying, crucify, crucify, were rebelling against authority. Who was the authority? Well, you had God in human form there. You had the Messiah. You had the one who was the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so you are chanting death to the ultimate authority of the universe, which is exactly what Psalm 2 is all about. Look at Psalm 2. We'll get some of it at least. Verse 1. Why do the nations rage? They seem just like frothing at the mouth. Why are they so angry? Why do the people's plot in vain? They're plotting about something. That's the opening phrase. It's the theme for the rest of the, of the psalm. Now, details. Verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, capital O-R-D, Yahweh, and against his anointed, anointed, the Mashiach, the the Messiah, the, the Christos, the Christ. Now, it, I hope somehow you see the messianic nature of this psalm. I mean, you got the kings of the earth, at least represented by Pilate, certainly represented by Herod. You have the rulers like Antipas and Caiaphas. You've got the chief priests of the city. They're all taking counsel together. As I said, you even got Herod and Pilate becoming friends that day. 
And they're all taking their stand and they're counseling together against the Lord and against his Christ. And what are they saying? Underlying it all is this. Now, they would never say this out loud. And you and I never say it out loud. And we didn't as non-Christians. And we don't even say it out loud as Christians. And yet I bet everyone in the room has felt it. And that is this. I don't want your rules. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. I don't like the strictures of all the morality and the prohibitions. And I don't like always doing your thing and all the communicable attributes. There's times when you want me to be generous. I don't want to be. Your times you want me to serve. I don't want to serve. Sometimes times you want me to be selfless. I want to be selfish. And we just don't like it. And some of you said it openly as non-Christians. You probably told people that tried to share the gospel with you, I don't want any of that. I don't want God's ruling my life. I certainly don't want God to take over my life. I want to be the captain of my own fate. I want to be the master of my own soul. All of us have felt that. But I'm saying that is the essence of insurrection. That's rebellion against authority. And what does that deserve? Well, verse 4, the one who sits in heaven, he's going to say, how silly is this? He laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Like some kind of giant looking at a little kid trying to take swings at his kneecaps. It's just, it's a laughable situation. Then, here's the, uh, speaking of the hell of fire from Matthew 5, 22. Then he will speak to them in his, there it is again, his wrath, his anger. He will terrify them in his fury saying what? Well, I set my king up. Here he was. As for me, I've set my king on Zion, on my holy hill, which represents often the heavenly throne room, but also it's a physical hill in Jerusalem, not far from where this thing is going down as we read about it in in Luke 23. He says, here's my king, and you're rejecting him. Here's my king, and you're condemning him. Here's my king, Judas, and you're selling him out for 30 pieces of silver. Here's my king, and you are so selfish, you don't want the strictures of his leadership. You don't want him to be Lord. If he's got goodies to pass out, I'll let you be my grandpa. Give me some lollipops, but I don't want you telling me what to do with my sex life or my thought life or my words. Stop with all of that. That's ultimate insurrection. I want to see myself in this passage, but I want to go much further than anyone we've met so far in our narrative in Luke 23 and say, when I see the name Barabbas, I want to see myself there. I am a murderer. I am an insurrectionist. Barabbas represents the totality of our sinfulness. How selfish are we as a culture right now? I hate to even quote these stats, and they vary on the polls, but I think about destroying the innocent. I think about here are people chanting for an innocent person to die. 46% in these surveys, somewhere near 50% in others, sometimes as low as 33%, would say, you know, a dog that brings me joy as my pet, if I had to make a choice between saving my dog in a fire or in a sinking ship or whatever, or a person, my neighbor, I just don't happen to know, I don't know him personally, I would save my pet, 46%. And the best stats are this, that I've read at least, 33% roughly say I would save my dog, 33% say I would save my neighbor, and 33% that I don't want to live next door to say I don't know what I would do. I'm thinking I need to decide ahead of time I'm going to save my neighbor. And in our day, you realize that just based on what brings me pleasure and joy, I'm much more likely in our culture, it seems, increasingly so, to say, well... It doesn't matter that someone's made in the image of God if they're an inconvenience for me or if they're not the kind of joy-producing fountain of, of, of happiness to me or comfort even. I don't, I don't, I'm not interested in that. Like, like the abortion epidemic, almost half of all unplanned pregnancy without couples saying, hey, I want to have a baby right now, end an abortion. And you know that. Oh, it's about the health of the mother. It's not about the health of the mother. It's not about the health of the child. 
I mean, that's down into single, low, single digits. Think of the, the, the climate of selfishness in our culture right now. And we recognize that the Bible's trying to get us to see this. If I don't like things, I want to overthrow it. If I don't like people, I want to dispose of them. If I can get something better out of it, I will sell it out for this money. It's, it's all throughout this passage, even down to the envy and jealousy that the Gospel of John says and Matthew says, this is what's driving all of this. I'd rather have the spotlight and you have it. Get out of the way. I want to be there. The murdering insurrection of Barabbas is a painted picture of who we are and what takes place in this text as you go back to it in Luke chapter 23 verse 22 as Pilate one last time says listen why should I crucify him there's no evil I can see here I haven't found anything of guilt in him deserving death I'm going to just punish him and release him why would you do that well maybe just for the hassle maybe a warning a deterrent I don't know but he certainly doesn't think he deserves execution But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries, verse 23, that he should be crucified and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted and released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. That's Barabbas for whom they had asked and he delivered Jesus over to their will. Now, if you've tried to put yourself in the sandals of Barabbas at this point, I just want you to recognize what that must have been like if you were Barabbas. I mean, you're in chains, and I don't know if you heard your name being mentioned first as Pilate tries to figure out the worst person among them, or even if it was someone else who came up with that, but you're the worst they got, and you need to be crucified that afternoon, and there's already a crucifixion planned, and you're going to be crucified, and all of a sudden, you're dragged out in front of the people, and maybe Pilate has someone bring you out just so that you can face the crowd, and they can remember what a terrible person you are, and that you need to be executed, and they end up chanting that the innocent guy get crucified and that you go free. I just wonder at that point when, when he says it just, he delivered Jesus over to their will, he released the man. Verse 25, that would be an amazing exchange of your life for Christ. And I just wonder what happened that afternoon. Did Barabbas stick around to see it? I mean, he caused an insurrection in the city. He was part of that. I just wonder if this being his city, he didn't just hit the roads and, and head to Jericho or somewhere else. Did he stick around? What was it like for you to see Jesus dragging this beam down the street of Jerusalem with people jeering at him and spitting on him or seeing him get whipped when you knew you were scheduled to get whipped or to watch him be hoisted up behind that hill that looks like a skull. They called it Golgotha and see that pillar, that post be dropped into the ground as he hung there. And you go, wait a minute, those two guys I was just in prison with and there's the guy that they had crucified and I'm sitting here without shackles on my, on my wrists. I mean, what an amazing thing. Or maybe he split town. I mean, maybe he thought, well, whatever, I'm going to head out. This is my hometown, but I am going to leave town. Maybe they're, wishing, maybe they're going to reverse this. Even as you're going, are you thinking about the fact that this afternoon I should be crucified, but instead I'm going to find some place of safety and solace somewhere else? What was it like for you to think that that guy that you'd heard about, this Nazarene that did miracles, this, this claim of a rebel rouser and a nuisance among the people, that he is now taking your spot, being crucified on your crossbeam, having the Roman soldiers whip his back instead of yours. What must have that felt like? What an amazing thought. Reformers like to speak in these terms. A revival of an old phrase just talked about the the crucifixion of Christ and the salvation that we have, the redemption that we get of being freed from an incarceration of our own sin to have the freedom of being someone who's fully accepted as though we were Christ is what they call the great exchange. The great exchange of my life for his and more specifically... 
his holiness for my sin. He gets punished for my sin. I get rewarded and favored and accepted because of his righteousness. I mean, that's the gospel. The gospel is not the gospel unless you first recognize Jesus is uniquely holy and secondly, that you are uniquely sinful to a place that you only know with the specificity that you know and you can look in the mirror and say, I am a sinner. And then you're ready to enjoy the grace of Jesus Christ. And I'll just put it this way on your outline. Number three, you need to cling to the great exchange. You need to say, that is my only hope. Christ is not some kind of anecdote. He's not some kind of knee brace. He's not going to make up for my lack in some way. He is my solution. I exchange my life for his life. I am now in Christ. And that makes me acceptable before God because all of my sin has been appended to his cross. Listen to these words. Romans chapter 8, verse 3. God has done what the law Weakened by the flesh. The law is great. It's a standard of God's attributes and particularly his communicable attributes codified in a rule set. Here it is. The rule set that says, act like this. But weakened by the flesh in that we couldn't do it, he fixed the problem by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He wasn't sinful, but he sure did look like a sinner, just like us, just human being. And for sin, he sent him for sin to solve the sin problem. He condemned sin in the flesh. There's the first half of the great exchange. Here comes the second half, verse four. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be met in us. Mike Fabares doesn't measure up. I don't meet the standard. But I'm gonna die, and when I die, I'm gonna step across the threshold, and God is going to embrace me into a place of his complete favor. And he's gonna say, come on in. Hope to hear a few more words. Well done. We'll, we'll shoot for that. But I know he's going to say, you're in. You're in. 100%, no condemnation for me. Why? Because the righteous requirement of the law was fulfilled in me. The righteous requirement, which is not only I need righteousness, but it is righteous that the guilty should be punished. And you know what? He took care of that on the cross. Galatians 3.13. Taking notes, that'd be a good one to jot down. Galatians 3.13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. What's the curse of the law? Sinner should be punished. By becoming a curse for us. He became the curse. For as it's written, it quotes the Old Testament, cursed is anyone who's hanged on a tree. And he was certainly hung on the product of a tree outside the city gates of Jerusalem. Why? Here's the good part. So that in Christ, in Christ, I now in Christ can receive the blessing of Abraham. And it might come even to me, the Gentile, so that we might receive the promised spirit by faith. What spirit? The Holy Spirit. How can the Holy Spirit have anything to do with me? Because of Christ. The righteous requirement met in Christ. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Cursed is anyone who hangs on the tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come even to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith goes on to say in that same chapter, for in Christ you were all sons of God through faith. I am now in Christ and therefore I am like a son of of God, like Jesus. I love this next line. For as many of you who were placed into Christ, baptizo, as many of you were baptized into Christ, he says, for as many have been baptized, you've put on Christ. You have him. There are things that are not in keeping with our human nature physically, in terms of physics. You put me in a fire, I'm going to burn up. I mean, there's a hostility and animosity between my human flesh and the, the fire and the temperature of flames. Just like my life should not be 
accepted by a holy God, I should be consumed by a holy God. But as we read in our DVR this week, in, in Lamentations again, it's because of his mercy that we're not consumed. To put it in the words of the psalmist, he said, God's salvation is our shield. It's like someone putting on one of those, have you seen those things that look like they're wearing tinfoil suits, these fire-resistant suits they get, and these guys can go on YouTube and walk through fire, you know, they can sit there in a bonfire and they can survive because that suit shields them from all that. You're in Christ. The thing that should consume you doesn't consume you because you're encased in that. You're in Christ. You've been placed into Christ. That's why here at the church, we like to illustrate the gospel, not as a bridge where, hey, good times over here, bad times over there, come on over here. But the umbrella, there's something coming everywhere. The judgment of God is coming. But the good news is there's a place where God's wrath has already been spent and expended. It is absorbed. It even the umbrella doesn't adequately illustrate. It's not like it just rolls off. It's absorbed and it's fully felt and it's fully experienced. And yet underneath that, by faith, if you just step by repentance and faith into that place, when the judgment of God comes, it's like I'm wearing a fire suit. I'm now accepted in Christ. Cling to the great exchange, and I'd be remiss to talk about the great exchange and not at least have you turn to one passage in Romans. So turn to Romans 3. Let me just wrap it up with this. Romans 3.21 through 26. Romans 3. Please follow along as I read this to you. What a great section of Scripture to remind us that Barabbas is free and Jesus is condemned, which means that everything that I needed has been supplied in Christ. Back to the fundamentals this morning at Compass Bible Church. This is the gospel. Listen, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Let's just start with that. The righteousness of God. The book started this way with the theme of of salvation. As he's about to get into sin, he starts with this, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, quoting chapter one. Think about that now. God here, picture it this way, with his left hand is bringing judgment upon the world. Just like we were sitting there in Genesis 6 and the promise of the coming flood. There is judgment coming because we deserve it. He's righteous. We're sinful. We should be excluded into outer darkness where there's weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. That should happen to us. But as the wrath of God leaves the station, so to speak, and it's coming our way, what God's delivering with his left hand, he's going to come out here and provide the solution with his right hand. The righteousness of God now has been manifest. Now look at this. Not by you trying to meet all the demands of the law. You couldn't. We couldn't. It was weakened by the flesh. We couldn't live up. So apart from the law, it has been made manifest. Now he tries to make a quick clarification, which is kind of a great connection here because the law, we find the the inscripturated rules of God's communicable attributes there in the law. But it says, you know, where we get all that, we also see prophecies in the law and the prophets, which were sections of the Old Testament. It bears witness to this, this advancement of God's solution, this thing called righteousness coming from heaven. And he explains it. The righteousness of God, and it was predicted in the Old Testament, it's coming by faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, both Jew and Gentile. There's no distinction because, number one, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We always learn this verse about sin, although the context is about salvation. Which is, yeah, we're all on equal footing. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory. Different places on the spectrum, but categorically in a bad, bad position. But being sinners, the good news is all of us, if we are justified, we're all justified the same way by his grace. We didn't earn it. We don't get it by our performance. It's all something God gives to us as a gift through the redemption, the freeing, the purchase. I should be condemned. I should be in the jailhouse of sin, but I get freed. That's what redemption means. I get freed. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus 
Now, how did that happen? Picture the two hands of God now, whom God put forward as a propitiation. So God's bringing his justice on a sinful world, but he also reaches out at the same time and brings the righteousness that we need, and he absorbs the wrath for those people that he's going to grant his righteousness to by bringing this propitiation, a word you didn't use this week in normal conversation with non-Christians, but maybe we should. Propitiation. The satisfaction of God saying, I am a holy God with demands of justice, the penal code, if you will, of heaven that says this should happen to these people. I'm going to bring all of that to bear on Christ by his death, by his blood. And all of that propitiation, all that satisfaction, all that redemption that comes from it, it's all just to be received by what? By faith. But it's not just by faith saying, if God's got a goodie bag, I want something from it. No, you've got to realize the holiness of Christ. You've got to understand the sinfulness of yourself. And then you're ready to embrace the great exchange justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ, whom God, in Christ, put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, to show, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he's put up with a lot of stuff, patience, he passed over former sins. He's been very patient and long-suffering with this world. But now in the New Testament, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. He's going to bring that wrath with his left hand, if you will, But he's also going to be the justifier and reach out with his right hand and provide the righteousness and the propitiation that's needed for us to the one who has faith in Christ. You start with this, you'll get people saying, I guess if there's a goodie bag and you got to have faith, I don't, sure, I guess I believe it all happened. The only way you can describe this kind of faith, and I try to in the outline, is by the word clinging. I cling to it. Why? Because Christ is holy and that's what I needed to be. And I'm a sinner And I see no other way out of my problem but to have God somehow take his life for my life and exchange him. In the words of Peter, in the words of God, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. The just for the unjust. What a great text. What a great gospel. And you don't get it by sitting here this morning and saying, well, if Christ can make up for some of my lacks, and I guess I've said a few lies and I had a few boo-boos in my life. Man, I know this is an unpleasant sermon in some respects because we're dealing with our own sinfulness, but please recognize that any kind of cheap address of Christianity in our day that doesn't get us to grapple with the problem of our own sin or the blinding glory of God's holiness is not a gospel at all. When I survey the wondrous cross, Isaac Watts wrote back in 1707, I know you know some of those lines, but here's a familiar one. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, certainly not in myself, save or accept in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. You know that verse. Here's the verse we don't often see in hymn books. His dying crimson, like a robe, spread o'er his body on a tree. Here's the, the blood of Christ. Then I am dead to all the globe. And all the globe dead to me. That's it. This is everything. The next verse that we know. Were the whole realm of nature mine. That were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine. Demands my soul, my life, and my all. 